Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Academy Rewind, the fortnightly podcast where we're taking a look at the Oscars from years past. I'm Tim, and with me, as always, is the man who freed the people out of bondage, Palmer. How are you today? Oh, you know, I'm doing very well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> How about you? I'm doing, I'm doing just, I'm doing just fine. I, um, uh, I have nothing further to add to that, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> et, cetera et cetera. You know, you know how it is. So we're here to talk about 1957 Best Oscar nominations. They are as follows. Around the World in 80 Days, Friendly Persuasion, The King and I, Giant, and The Ten Commandments. What do you think won Best Picture? Giant? Uh, that would be incorrect. Okay. Do you want to take another guess? King and I? That would be incorrect. Do you want to take another guess? Ten Commandments? That would be incorrect. Do you want to take another guess? Friendly Persuasion. That is also incorrect. So nobody won. Around the World <laughs> in 80 Days won Best Picture. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah, isn't that fun? <laughs> isn't that a fun fact for you today? <laughs> wow. You didn't really think that was going to be the... No. Well, I think I can tell you why, and I won't tell you until the end. Of course not. Because we're going to go not in that order. But let's start with The King and I, since that was a pretty good guess there. Before, et cetera, we, et cetera. before we start, two things I've learned about 1957 from watching these movies. Yep. One... They no one had anything to do other than watch movies. Well, it was a boon for America. <laughs> sure. Oh, no, because of the sheer of the, amount of... of the sheer length of just these five movies, it would take you almost a year to watch them. Oh, yeah, and we did it. Yep. We did it. And the second thing is... We actually started watching these movies before our first episode of Academy yep. Rewind ever. <laughs> and the second thing is that... Apparently, there was a shortage of men because every, because there are at least two different movies where women are very overly excited to see a man. Mm. Wasn't sure where you were going with that, but that's true. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what scene you're talking about in multiple movies. Yes. Oh, man. I didn't even make that parallel. All right. Let's jump right in. It helps when you watch them both like together. Yeah, that's true. All right. So let's start with The King and I, directed by Walter Lang, written by Ernest Lehman uh, and uh, Oscar Hammerstein the second, uh, based on the play by Margot Landon. Uh, King and I is a very famous Broadway musical, which transplanted itself onto the big screen or the big screen onto the Broadway stage. No, it went the other way. It went the other way. Yeah, because um, Yul Brynner started off in... On Broadway and yeah. then made his transition to film. Okay, I thought so. Okay, um, starring Deborah Kurt and Yul Brynner. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Cinematography. It won Best Actor for Yul Brynner, Art Direction for a Colored Film, Costumes for a colored film, sound, and music, but not the sound of, of music. Womp womp. The hills are alive with the sound of music. <laughs> anyway, so so The King and I is about a widower played by Deborah Kerr. So she and her son um, 
ex- she accepts this position from the king of Siam, modern day Thailand, um, which kind of threw me for a loop because it was like because I've only known this as like king of Siam, mm-hmm. and they're like Bangkok. I'm like, it's in Thailand. What the hell is this Siam stuff? People change the names of their countries. <laughs> a couple of years ago, we were just known as the colonies. <laughs> we didn't even have a real name. No. no, just kidding. They still called us America. The colonies in America over there. <laughs> but anyway. Over there. Over there. So so she accepts this position as a tutor for the king's children mm-hmm. and ends up also being the tutor for many things. Also, the king's heart, maybe potentially. Etc. 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 Not in a lovey-dovey romance kind of way. Kind of like in a My Fair Lady kind of way, where they just learn to love and respect one another. Yeah. Up until the point where he doesn't have a heart anymore, because it stops pumping blood. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen The King and I before? No. What did you think about it? Uh, like, I don't start know. with the good things. And I'm Palmer sandwich. I really liked the set pieces on Mm -hmm. this. The set pieces were gorgeous. And I liked how each room kind of had a color scheme. Yes, it did. That's uh, that's good. The throne room had all gold, and then there was another room that was more pastel. Um, I also think this might be my first uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. That's not true. You've seen The Sound of Music. Oh, that is Rogers and Hammerstein? Yeah. Okay. So this is my second one. Have you ever seen Cinderella? No, I've never seen the musical Cinderella. Oh. You're missing out. I think you'd actually really like it. Yeah. This one, I don't know. I can't understand why it's a classic. Like The, the songs to me are, are kind of forgettable. I would definitely agree with you. I'm sure there's going to be some people out Except there. Except like who, getting to know you. Obviously. I think getting to know you is a classic. Yeah, and I and I think shall we dance is a classic. I think and I, that one. I, maybe it's just because I've known it almost my whole life. But yeah, that one sticks with you. Shall we dance? One, two, three, and one, two, three. Yeah, shall we dance? Bum, 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 bum. It, it but, works, but I think most of the other songs don't typically have the flair that mm-hmm. a normal musical has. I've seen this movie before. Yeah. I couldn't tell you one other song besides the two that we just mentioned. Yeah. And it's not my first pass at The King and I. Mm-hmm. They just it's just not one of it's just not one of Roger and Hammerstein's better ones. Yeah. And this is based off a true story. Yes it is. So there's that aspect which is good because I don't really know anything about yeah, the story. It's based off well the play I think is called Anna and the King. Yes, because that was what the remake of with the movie was. Annette Benning? No, um Is it Chun Yung Fat? No, the it is Chow Young Fat as as the King. The Anna is played by uh, Silence of the Lambs. Oh Jody Foster. Jody Foster, yes. Oh I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's not a musical. And that I knew. I think it's. I think that one's based more on the play. Although there was an animated version called "The King and I," which I believe is also based off the musical. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So, so I did like the. I did like the. I liked the palace. I really liked the production design in the palace. The person who played Anna was also was also very Deborah well. Kerr. Deborah Kerr. Yeah, Deborah Kerr was was very well. Was very good, rather. Yul Brenner at times I felt was overacting. I think that's what Yul Brenner does. does? I, I mean, 
I think it works. I think it works for him, but he he was bringing stage acting to a film role right. and it's a totally different type of acting. Yeah. Like it though even the way he comes into a room and presents himself is a way that you would on stage to project yourself and make you stand out on stage. Yeah, because he Which, definitely seems like he's projecting to the back of the room. Yeah, I think it kind of works for his character. This because he's kind of full of himself. He's like, no, it, this I am is great. Like, on mm-hmm. all my children think so. See, like, and they're like, I am can't be so small. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as for the as for like best actor winner, I don't think. I mean, he's in two of these movies, yeah. and I didn't like him in this as much as I liked him in Ten Commandments. Right. So those were the things that I really liked. Some of the things that kind of missed for me, like I said, the songs, the aging of the movie. And I just mean mm-hmm. like how this movie ages doesn't particularly hold up well. At times it feels like it's, it's more mocking. Uh, yeah, I... It feels a little mocky. I don't yeah. think it's supposed to, though. It's it's supposed to be like, look, we're all just people. Yeah, uh, and even to the point where, where mocking to the point where, has his as the kids who who have mothers that are in favor with the king, come out to be presented. There's of course a set of twins. Because they're Siamese twins, get it? Oh, I didn't even honestly didn't even pick up on that. They were coming. They were coming out, and then I saw two of them come out together, and I'm like, "Oh, oh no, <laughs> oh, no. you did it! You went there! <laughs> oh, you did it!" Um, um, and then, and then there was stuff where, like the the son, when the son talks about like what they learned, and he's like, "She taught us." That the world is spinning around the sun on an invisible pole when everyone knows it's on the back of a giant turtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just. What do you mean? That's <laughs> that's how it is. That's how it is. Yeah. The world's on the turtle's back. It's a very it's a very famous common. true story. Yeah. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Actually, the world on the turtle's back is a very famous mythological story. Yeah. But uh, yes, I I agree with you. I don't think. It ages well. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious to know because I it. I think it was just on Broadway again recently. Uh, 2012, I think. Okay, I so I'm. I'd love to see what they did to if they even modernized it a little bit because mm-hmm. I know they did that for Cinderella and Cinderella is pretty PC as far as right. musicals go. So I'm. I, I would like to see if they did anything here. But ultimately, I think the film looks very nice. Mm-hmm. Costumes were great. Sets were great. Uh, but it just it, yeah, didn't yeah. age well. It I think I think that's the – I think the story doesn't age well. Well, I think the way the story is presented doesn't age right. well. But I think the story itself can. But the way that they present Siam is not – Mm-hmm. Terrific, yeah. And I, after watching this movie, I never want to hear etc. etc. I never want to hear etc. etc. again. Um, but I also like I would never want to hear you or any Star Wars fan complain 
about Padme dying of a broken heart. I never complained about Padme dying of a broken he, heart. Where he's like, I've been shamed. I'm going to die now. Yep. You know, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> the heart just stops working yeah. in a man who is clearly a physical specimen of perfection <laughs> until he gets lung cancer. Very sad. Yeah. Um, Leo Brenner died of lung cancer. That's, oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. That's where you were going with it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. He was only 65, something like that. Yeah, uh, probably. I think maybe maybe seventy five, but I he was I he was young because he was obviously a physical spot. He like great. He was in great shape, and when he got lung cancer, he toured around denouncing smoking until he died. Mm. Yeah, it worked out really well. Obviously, <laughs> so let's move on to. Wait, wait, we got fun facts. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you oh. always forget the fun facts. Well, sometimes you don't have fun facts, so maybe you should this be is... consistent in your fun fact giving. I usually have at least one fun fact per movie. Okay, go. Okay. Um, I Someone's going to actually have to fact check the first one, but someone was telling me when I told him I was watching this movie that not only did Yul Brenner star in the original Broadway version, which I knew, mm-hmm. but like he he looked at the show as his show. So he actually did... Um, like mini tours with the show. Yeah, that's like right. He would do time in Boston. He would do shows in Chicago, and he had no understudy. Wow! So even if he was sick or tired, yeah. I do know that after he left film acting, he went back to playing the King of Siam and did those tours. Okay. So I think so. He got film roles based off of his time on Broadway. Did a bunch of films, yeah. including Westworld, and then, uh. And then went back to tour as the King of Siam. Okay. He was so, very attached to it. Good for yeah. him. Yeah. So This guy from Russia. Marnie Nixon was hired on a six-week contract, and she was to be the st- at the studio every day that Deborah Kerr rehearsed a scene with a song in it because she was the singing voice. Oh, okay. Nixon would actually stand next to Kerr and walk through the whole scene, both of them singing, and Nixon would look closely at Kerr's facial expressions to try and imitate her speech patterns in the song. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. That's so much extra work. It really is. It paid off, though, because I didn't know that wasn't Deborah Kerr. Yeah. yeah. Originally, Yul Brenner only wanted to direct with Marlon Brando playing the king. Ew, I'm on board ew, for this. Ew, ew, <laughs> no, ew. No, I want this. You come to me <laughs> in my country of Siam. You mean Marlon Brando? That's not good, Marlon Brando. Yeah, no. Yeah. According to Maureen O'Hara's autobiography, 20th Century Fox had actually cast her for the starring role, but Richard Rogers objected and said, I won't have that pirate queen playing our Anna. Wow. Yep. Wow. I won't have that pirate. It feels like such an insult, even though she was the pirate queen. I know, really. Yeah. And then finally... The real-life Anna Leones was the maternal aunt of a very famous actor. Natalie Portman. Close. Boris Karloff. Oh, so close. Yeah. Really? That's really cool. Yeah. It was, yeah. That's Um, cool. I thought I put it down, but apparently I didn't. One thing I will say as far as we said this was based on a true story. It was a book, I believe, the real-life Anna wrote after her time, but... She wrote it after she died? Yes, after after, after she died. After her time. Yeah, after her time with the king. Gotcha. 
Um, to my knowledge, it is like incredibly inaccurate. Oh, really? Like it's it's like the king wasn't as portrayed. Like he was much more. He was much more of a modern person. He was so he was so he was. So, because the the movie portrays it as he wants to be modern, he just right. doesn't know how to be modern, right? Because boy, do was... they say technology a lot, right? Yeah, is it technology? Yeah. Science. Scientific, scientific, yeah. yeah, scientific elephants. What what does that even mean? I really like. He wanted to send President Lincoln elephants. elephants. He's like, you need elephants to be be subverted. How are you going to be a good country without elephants? <laughs> how are you going to win the Civil War without, without elephants? A good question. Yeah. But One he that was, Abe Lincoln might have asked himself. He was looked at as being very modern as, in, as far as our historical So context. he knew how to use a fork is what yes, you're saying. Yes, I believe so. So there is, there is definitely some inaccuracies as far as the source material goes. Well, also musicals. Yeah. And people, people's no, memoir. They, they actually did break out into song. I mean, I do. So, I mean, there may not be a whole orchestra behind me backing me up, but it is possible. It is. All right. So where are we going next? We're going on to the sleeper hit, Friendly Persuasion, directed by William Wyler, written by Michael Wilson, based on the book by Jessamine West, uh, starring Gary Cooper, Dorothy Dorothy McGuire, and Anthony Perkins. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates, yep. if anybody was wondering. Director, adapted screenplay, sound, and original song. It won nothing. nothing. It won nothing. Nope. This is a movie about a Quaker family during the Civil War who has to decide whether raising arms for the cause is important or will they stick to their values of nonviolence? Is that a good was that a good My version of this is it is about a very tenacious goose who wins the civil war for the union. <laughs> I almost went with that I actually almost went with that version because <laughs> the movie starts with this little boy in the Quaker family and and a and goose his ongoing blood feud with, with a, goose. a goose. Yeah. And it's hilarious. It is. Because it keeps happening. As I, when you texted me and said, uh, when you texted me and said, this movie better be about this blood feud between this goose and this boy. I'm going to be really mad. And I said, it's not, but at least it keeps happening really all does. the way right up to the end of the film. It's spectacular. It is. Oh, man. This movie was. So when I looked at what this movie was about on paper, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, man. This is going to be so dry. This movie was so good. I loved this movie. I really like this movie. <laughs> aside, Goose aside, which is enough to go to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not as you have so you have the very dour for lack of a better term Quaker religion mm-hmm. that that looks down on a lot of things. Wouldn't call it looked down on. They're just not interested, right? And then you have this Quakers family. are like hippie Puritans, <laughs> and then you have this family whose whose matriarch is one of the is one of the. Um, it's not a priest, but reverend. It's well, I mean, it's what it's one of the Quakers' version of a reverend or a priest in their meeting house. Yes. 
And then you, mean you patri- have you mean patriarch? No, matriarch. Mother, the mother, the mother. Right. She's one of the. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm sorry. Yes. She's one of the. She does like the the services. Right. So meetings. They call them meetings. They call them meetings, and it's called friendly persuasion because that's I guess the nickname for the Quaker faith because they call people of the faith friends. So it's just they just persuade right. you to be friendly. So, and then you have her family who are also Quakers that are like bad Quakers because you know the husband's like I want an organ. <laughs> That was that's like their version of like oh no I bought Super Bowl tickets for twenty thousand dollars yeah like, I bought this organ for the family yeah how dare you I I wanted an organ and the you know the daughter's like I want to dance well too bad you know and the son's like I just want to kill that goose <laughs> but no one will but let I me. love that goose more than I love all of you that's right so. So it's it's about like this this matriarch trying to trying to keep them to the ideals of the Quaker faith and them at every turn going, nah. Nah, dude. It's no good. <laughs> but they still believe in the Quaker faith. It's just like we want to do other things as well. Yeah, well it's it kind of in its own way, on a much smaller scale, kind of reminds me of Fiddler on the Roof. That's like we have the traditions, right. but we also have to like join the world kind of kind of deal and there's just a, a huge impasse there so before you watch this movie i told you that there was a scene in which the there was going to be a scene that you i wanted the mother to say he have his goodness now yeah did you get where i was did you get where that was no cuz the only the only time i could really place it would have been towards the beginning when they're in the meeting house for the first time. Okay. And the uh, the the union officer comes in to talk to them. And I know the husband says something, and I'm like, yeah, I could see it there, but... So towards the end of the movie, because yep. the, the whole debate is like whether to take up arms or not mm-hmm. to take up arms, and, and then uh, Gary Cooper, who plays the father, who was excellent, by the way, uh, he thought he was excellent, he didn't think so, but okay. He didn't think so? No, he he would never watch this movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought he was quite delightful <laughs> and kind of fun. So he goes into the cabinet and he pulls out his rifle like, yeah. <gasps> he has one. And then he doesn't say a word. They just look at each other. He and his wife just look at each other and he walks off. And yeah. then she just kind of accepts and stares out at the distance. And that's the bit where I wanted her to say, because... Um, I think the daughter is like, Mom, where's he going? And I really, it's, the mom doesn't say anything. And I really just wanted to be like, he have his goodness now, <laughs> which is a quote from the Crucible for those who don't, yeah. for those who don't understand. Um, I didn't find it odd that he had a, had a rifle because they do mention that he was, he was good at um, shooting squirrels back in the day. Yeah, I don't think it was odd that he had a rifle. Yeah. I mean, most families, Quakers or not, even Puritans had rifles. Yeah. This is one of the two movies, by the way, that women just freak out over the sight of seeing a man. So the so those girls that freak out at the sight of seeing Anthony Perkins, yeah, like they just literally can't contain themselves. Oh yeah, that Anthony it's, Perkins it's great. has shown up on their doorstep. That is that is such a good scene. Yep, what, like four this, years, four years before he murders people. Yeah, this this movie has not Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates. Yeah. Should, Anthony <laughs> Perkins is totally cool. He's a regular human. This movie has so many good scenes that. 
give the movie lightness to a movie that could be dry if it just went with its base concept mm-hmm. of the the tug between religion and war. And I really like this concept because I don't think it's been, you know, Hacksaw Ridge does kind of explain it. Yeah, that's a But Hacksaw a Ridge, like, comparison. he kind of volunteers and he's like, and he does this. The, the war pretty much comes to their doorstep and they have to decide at that point, you know, do we do we strictly adhere to our faith of being conscientious objectors or do we do something because we, because morally we think we kind of have to. And, and I like the difference in the way that the father looks at the situation versus the son, like the drive of youth, like, no, we have to do this versus the more reserved maybe more wizened version of life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this movie quite, yeah, it quite was a very bit. Good. Yeah. If if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. It was it was one it was, of the breezy very enjoyable. It had some really good light hearted moments. That goose man. It's great. Speaking of the goose, getting Samantha the Goose, played by three different geese, to bite Richard Eyre's posterior on cue is a major challenge. To protect the child, the costume sewed extra padding into the seat of his pants. But nothing they tried, including a lettuce leaf hidden beneath his legs, got the goose to approach when required. Finally, the goose was attached to a wire pulling pulley and given mild electric shocks to get him to go after the child. Wow, that's awful. <laughs> I mean, goose do what they want. So Yeah. Goose does as goose does. Even during filming, William Wyler wasn't sure how far Jess's involvement into the Civil War should go. So he filmed two scenes. In one scene, he picks up a gun. In the other, he doesn't. After listening to arguments from colleagues over which version to use, Wyler decided to have him pick up the gun, prolonging the suspense over whether or not he would shoot the Confederate soldier who had just killed his best friend. Hmm. Hmm. I can think that does work better. Now some things that really kind of make you think twice about Gary Cooper. Hmm. Gary Cooper arranged for his daughter to date Anthony Perkins during filming, apparently not realizing the young actor was gay. Hmm. Well, if Anthony Perkins didn't share that information, like, no, 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 I'll set you up on a date with my daughter. It'll be fun. He's like, okay. Uh, Gary Cooper was strongly against the casting of Dorothy McGuire as he felt she was a poor actress and not attractive enough to play his wife. All right, that is making me feel different about... That one makes me feel different about Gary Cooper. (laughs) Get a hold of yourself, man. You're Gary Cooper. uh, You're not, you know... He also didn't think audiences would buy that he was a Quaker or that he was as old as he was supposed to be in this movie. See, I I would have pegged that he was at least 20 years older than his wife. (laughs) He does not look super Well, it's funny because he felt felt like people wouldn't believe he was that old, meaning he he thought they would think he was younger. Like, oh, this person's too young to play this character. And most of the audience felt that he was too old looking. Yeah, that's what I thought he was much older looking than the rest of his family. Yeah. I was like, that's a man who's about 55, 60, and his wife's a spry 35. Yeah. Bah, whatever. Yeah. That's funny. Shut up, Gary Cooper. (laughs) I mean, you're dead now, but shut up. Anyway, let's move on to your favorite film, Giant, directed by George Stevens, written by Fred Goyle, 
Ivan Moffat, based on the book by Edna Ferber, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Carol Baker, and Mercedes McCambridge. This movie was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for James Dean, Best Actor for Rock Hudson, Supporting Actor for McCambridge, Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, Costumes, Editing, and Music. It won Best Director. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all. Oh, this movie was so boring. This movie was horrendously boring. Horrendously boring. This movie was over three hours long. A giant is about uh, a family of cattle ranchers in Texas. Now, if that sounds, if even that remotely sounds interesting to you in any way, let me rest assured. It's even more boring than how it sounds. The movie starts at the be- kind of the beginning of the romance between Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor, and then it goes all the way up until until they're elderly with a kid with a grandchild and yeah. and everything. And holy baloney, this movie was boring. I actually, I, I'm all for telling you that some movies have really good bits about them and then uh, you know and others don't here's my one good bit about this movie at the end, like about halfway through the movie well not halfway through the movie there's but there's this, there's this under <laughs> there's this undercurrent of racism towards mexican workers in texas and that one their son marries uh, a mexican right. a right, mexican right. worker yep. and there's the scene at the end in the diner Yes. Where the woman just the waitress is like, give she just gives the 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 wife such a weird hard look, just because she's Mexican amongst these yeah the, these white people, and and I was like wow we have not come far at all, like yeah, we really like haven't. at all this movie was yeah. made in nineteen fifty five came out in fifty six nominated in fifty seven. And we're doing the same nonsense. It's not as bad. I wouldn't say like you know in that right. way. I don't. Know, most people wouldn't blink an eye. But just as general treatment in the mm-hmm. way they talk about people go yeah. in the film, like we are not that far away from this, and that's really sad to me. Yeah, exactly. So here's here's my take on this: is I didn't like this movie, and I don't like this movie for the fact of its its runtime. I feel like there's very little story, and it kind of pads the runtime a lot mm-hmm. to the point where I think if you take out a good chunk of this movie and you you boil it down to the racism, which I felt kind of just got sprung on you at some point, because mm-hmm. like the the so the son getting married in secret, yep, so his family doesn't find out. Like, at no point did they ever give me a reason to think his family was racist. was racist. See, it's actually the opposite of that. I think the movie gives you that feeling because there's a scene early when Rock Hudson is talking to one of the, the women who runs right. the farm. And she's the one that's like, ah, oh, the Mexicans, if I wasn't on them all the time, they'd be doing nothing. Blah, blah, right. blah. And Rock Hudson's like, hey, that's not true. Cut that out. Like, yeah. So... Where did he change from that version to the end? Right. You know, so I just... And then you have the... You have what essentially turns out to be the main story, but 
throughout most of the movie, I think it just gets rele- relegated as a side story in the James Dean character. Yep. You know, so who was very good in this film? Wow! For, for such so a for, for opposite for, points of view for a that. boring movie. Every time he showed up, I went, "Wow, he's acting." Well, every time he showed up, I was I was at least like, "Well, there's a plot here at least." Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what it was. Maybe that's what I was attracted so, to. Rock Hudson's sister died. Is that who gives so. him the plot of land? I and think so. She really liked the James Dean character, who wasn't particularly viewed fondly by everybody else and she gives him a plot of the land that the family owns Mm -hmm. and he goes off and he drills for oil which the family kind of looks down on and becomes a millionaire and then the second half of the movie is kind of him falling from grace because you want to see him succeed and then he just becomes an ass that's right and and you see his downfall to the point of, if you actually gave me more of a reason why him and Rock Hudson are at odds. That's a more interesting movie. That is a more interesting movie. And you can chop down this movie by like an hour and a half. Mm, true story. But as far as James Dean himself, like this is the first movie with James Dean that I've seen that I can think of. And he just sounded like he was doing a bad Brando impression the entire time. Maybe he was. Maybe he was. That's what that's what he wanted you to think. Well, then kudos. He's the James but... Franco of his day. Don't you know oh, that? God. <laughs> <laughs> fun facts about this movie, because I'm, I'm done talking about it already. Yeah. Well, one of these fun facts is really going to have you is really going to have you thinking very hard about the the, the uh, level, the level of. Um, Good James Deaniness. Uh, no, like to, when you set the bar low, expectations. Okay, like the level expectations of people in 1957. The heat in Texas was so great that during one day of shooting, Mercedes McCambridge makeup melted into her skin, creating a serious infection that left her neck scarred. Ew, that's awful yes. for her. Oh my goodness! Tell um, me more. Also, this was James Dean's last movie. He died not too long after this movie was made. Right after he was nominated. That's yeah. crazy. Um, also, you. This is his last movie. They were still they were still filming when he died. Oh, and I guess Elizabeth Taylor was very distraught. Oh, so he was nominated posthumously. Yeah, and he didn't win posthumously. He, he was uh, Elizabeth Taylor was very distraught, and I guess. Um, she was given a couple weeks off for mm-hmm. you know for bereavement for bereavement, but I guess like the day she found out, the director forced her to do um, a couple of the scenes Ooh. that actually like they were doing other they were doing like reverse angles on scenes that she had with him. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, that's tough. So George Stevens had a hard time directing James Dean. The problem started with Stevens ordering Dean to get rid of his actor's studio mannerisms, like moving his head from side to side or hopping while walking. The two argued consistently, and at one point, the actor went on strike for three days. Dean even ordered his agent to come to the location to help him deal with the director. He also referred to Stevens as fatso behind his back. In defiance. Dean would often hold up production for hours, causing the film to go over schedule. Wow. Wow. I don't remember the name of the movie, but this 
the um the kind of the relationship between them two mm-hmm. inspired an Orson Welles movie that was unfinished because it ran out of money the the production was done but they still had editing to do so the production remained unfinished up until it's being released this year in November on Netflix Netflix ponied up the money to get the movie edited and completed as Orson Welles would have wanted. It's called The Other Side of the Wind. That is it. It comes out November 2nd, I believe, on Netflix. Hmm. As far as what people were doing in 1957, this movie was the highest grossing film in Warner Brothers history until the release of The Exorcist. Ew. About 20 years after. Mercedes McCambridge has roles in both movies. Ew. And not only do I really like this fun fact, but I'm sure there is one particular listener out there who's really going to like this fun fact. The character of Jet Rink inspired Larry Hagman's character, J.R. Ewing, in Dallas. Hmm. (laughs) Yes. So people out there who really like TV soaps should really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to move on from this film. Please do. Great. Uh, We're going to talk about The Ten Commandments. Okay. Directed by Cecil B. DeMille, written by N.K.S. McKenzie and Um, Jesse Lasky Jr. It's it's written by God. And Jack Garris, Frederick M. Frank, Dorothy Clark. Okay, so that's it. So So The Ten Commandments is actually based, is not based on... It's not ba- I mean, it kind of is based on the book of Exodus from the Bible, but it's actually mostly based on three novels about Moses. It's based on The Prince of Egypt by Dorothy Clark Wilson, Pillar of Fire by J.H. Ingram, and On Eagle's Wings by A.E. Southen. Oh, I love that song. And he, no, Eagle's Wings is the song. Eagle Wings is the name of the book. <laughs> you were close, though. Uh, starring Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, and Anne Baxter, amongst many, many people, including Vincent Price. Yeah, that was fun. He was Baca, Baca, Razar. No wait, and Just um, and James, not James Cagney. Uh, I would love it if James Cagney was in this movie. Edward G. Robin. No, not Edward G. Robinson. Who? Yeah, talk about Seti, right? No, um, Dakin. Oh shoot, Robert. Nexler? No, no, not even close. Uh, Look it up. Keep talking. It's in my fun facts. He was in two. Edward G. Robinson. I was right. Go me. Edward G. Robinson? Yeah. Was Dakin. Was Dakin. Yeah. Yeah. Where is your messiah now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This movie was nominated for Best Picture, Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume, Sound, and Editing. It won a special award for special effects. A special special effects award. Also, fun fact: they say the word bondage eighteen times in this movie. Only eighteen? I know you would think it would be more <laughs> because you hear it a lot. You do, but they space it out enough. They don't say slavery almost at all. All they say is bondage. Free the slaves from bondage. Well, Free the that, people from bondage. Isn't that also how it's referred to in the Bible? It's referred to as slavery. Is it? If they were slaves, I know they were slaves. 
But I thought they also referred I, to it as I mean, bondage. It's translation. I mean, you could also say bondage, but they say bondage a lot. One t- so I'm watching the movie and and marking things down, and then so like okay, bondage, and then two minutes later, somebody said it again. I was like, oh my god, just stop. There's a thesaurus, and you can et use cetera, it, etc. Et so the Ten Commandments, for those of you who are not aware, is the s- partial story of Moses. It's like a big chunk of Moses' life, and then they skip a bunch, and then it ends. Yes, because for some reason, the Bible doesn't really like writing stories during like a specific age period of a character. So, so this is that's not this is true and untrue. For for Moses, so like the movie, it takes almost two. It's a three hour and forty minute movie. It takes almost two hours for Moses to leave Egypt the first time, mm-hmm. and then he and then he goes and he he gets married and he the burning bush and all that. He goes back to Egypt and the plagues and blah blah blah. And then they leave Egypt again, and then they get to the bit with the golden calf. And after that bit with the golden calf, there should be. 40 years of wandering in the desert. Well, 40 is the 40 is the number used by the Bible to designate a long time. It doesn't it doesn't actually mean it was always 40. Right. 40 is just the it was a really long time. Well, they number. kind of tell you like except that it I, was except that it was until it was until everybody from the generation that kind of built the golden calf died. Died. Right. But but in that bit in the Bible, there's a bunch more stories in there. It right, doesn't skip forward. The Bible doesn't. Gotta, the, the Bible doesn't go forty years later. Dot dot no, dot. No, I meant I meant when he leaves Egypt the first time. Yeah, and then marries his wife Zephora. Zephora. not Zephora. It's Zephora in the movie, in Ten Commandments. Right. And then it skips a good chunk of time. You also skip a chunk of time from like him growing up too. Sure, yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing about him as a kid. It right. skips right to when he's an adult. Yeah. But you know, this movie's long enough. I don't need. It, to... it doesn't feel it. I I disagree. I think it felt no, it. I I this movie for it being about four hours. And granted, like I I skip the I skip the intermission music. I don't. I don't uh, there is life. practically none. Nothing. They cut it down. Da- in my version, they yeah. cut it down. It was like intermission, and then it was over, and then it was gone. It yeah. didn't actually play anything. Um, but, it, yeah, no, to me it doesn't feel like it's it's four hours long. Yeah, it, fe- it, it felt it to me, not necessarily in a bad way, because I enjoy this mm-hmm. film, but at the, but at the same time, this movie was really long. I think it just takes too long for him to get out of Egypt the first time so that by the time you get to the bit with the golden calf and everything, you're like, all right, let's right, get a move on. When you get to that bit, it is kind of wrapping up. It's right? wrapping up, yeah. but I need it to wrap up faster at that point. I like mean, we, this... watched, we watched God etch every single commandment <laughs> into that stone. I was yeah. like, that's a really cool effect. I only needed to see it twice. Yeah. I didn't need to watch it ten times. I mean, but everything from the beginning of the movie when they're singing Deliver Us to the <laughs> end when they're singing When You Believe, this movie's just great. I think you watched the wrong movie. You don't know that. <laughs> I think you watched the wrong one. What I actually was enjoying was watching some of the cues that 
the Prince of Egypt took from this film. Okay. So the the side ponytail of the princes, both Ramses and Moses had one, and the film, the film also, the Prince of Egypt also does that side ponytail, and they in that film they also made Ramses kind of look like Yul Brenner. Yeah, they did. If you it, he looks that Ramses looks like Yul Brenner. Yeah, I will say this might be a little bit closer to the Bible version than say the Prince of Egypt. I like the relationship between them in the Prince of Egypt more. Like, I like the fact that they were very close, whereas this one, they're, they're almost always adversaries. Well, allow my scripture scholar to come out for a second. <clears throat> Degree. Anyway, so I could tell you that the Pharaoh is actually not named in the Bible. He's only referred to as Pharaoh. It that is, is it's one only, of my fun facts. It's, only, it's not a fun fact. I already knew it. Um, I mean, it is fun, but I already knew it. Ramses the second is the best guess for the Pharaoh based on the time that they think this happened, this happened and this happened and this happened. However, that is not, it's not set in stone. It's not definite, which I think the film is kind of good about saying that like have Moses name stricken from all the Egyptian records. Right. So, cause he's not, Moses is not mentioned at, in any Egyptian record and they were really good about keeping their records. They knew what was what they, we know almost every single Egyptian King and queen going back to the very beginning yeah. of the Egyptian dynasty in the first empire. Like it's crazy how good they were. And Moses isn't mentioned at all. Right. So I like that the movie was like, have his name be stricken of this blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Also, on top of that, um, Ramses II is considered one of the greatest pharaohs of Egypt yes. ever. Like, bar none. He's one of the best. The f- cause you, you essentially just named Ramses as two different characters. The, the pharaoh is Seti. Seti is Seti. Right? Yes, that's correct. His father is Seti. His father is Seti and his grandfather is Ramses I, I believe. Is because, he, I'm not sure. Yeah, because that. in this movie, they say Ramesses uh, was the one who ordered the, the ordered death the death of the, of the firstborns. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is some historical precedent for for a mass migration out of Egypt, like a slave migration out of yeah. Egypt. I don't know if that bit adds up to the time of Ramses or not. Well, I'm not sure. I will read you my fun fact. Okay, because it actually it actually uh, talks about that. Okay, the Bible never identifies Pharaoh by name, any Pharaoh by name. However, this film and all versions of the story that have followed it make Ramses the Pharaoh that Moses has to escape from. The only evidence supporting this is the claim in Exodus. That the Hebrews built the city of Ramesses, of Ramesses, and that it was named for the Pharaoh. It could have easily been named for the sun god Ra. Some experts believe that the Pharaoh of Exodus was Thutmose III. Spell it for me. T-H-U-T-M-O-S-E. Yeah, all right. Thutmose? Also spelled T-H-O-T-H-M-E-S. T-H-O... T-H-O what? T H O T O T M O S E M O S E Thotmose. Yeah. Thotmose the third. Thotmose. About one or two centuries before Ramesses the second. Okay. Yeah. So they so they actually in this movie they mentioned this this group called the Hyksos, which is the other group that migrated out with would have migrated out with the Hebrews mm-hmm. and they went on to Greece. 
they and and as and then the Hebrews would have continued on to Canaan, which is is modern day Israel, right? Um. Uh, so. So anyway, so you said that you like their relationship better in the Prince of Egypt than you do in the Ten Commandments. I agree with you. That relationship has no historical or biblical precedent. Okay. So that like how Moses was treated in the palace, no one knows. Yeah. But I, I think I just the the movie I think the story has a better emotional weight. I agree. With them being so close and Moses like and Moses being like, "Look, I don't want to do this, mm-hmm. but you're leaving me no choice. Like, if you just let us go, everything's fine. We, you know, you can continue running the city, and good on you." Yep. Whereas in this one, they seem to have more of an adversarial relationship from the beginning. From the very beginning, they're not happy for one another. So when Moses goes back to deliver God's message, you kind you already know how Ramses is going to react because. One, he's not going to like what Moses is saying. Plus, Moses is saying it, and Ramses doesn't like Moses. So it doesn't have any kind of emotional weight behind it, which is which I, I, I think is unfortunate. I think the Prince of Egypt does a better job at... Right. I think the Prince of Egypt does a better job at condensing the story and then, and then delivering uh, a more emotionally resonant yeah. version. Also, Moses, when he comes back as God, kind of a jerk. Like yeah. he's he's pretty okay before he's like I give you Ethiopia you know all of it yeah. right now in front of you, um, but uh, I his Moses is kind of like all right calm 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 down, just calm down a little bit. <laughs> when so at the kind of the, the first scene back from the intermission mm-hmm. when you have like essentially Ramesses, I wouldn't say being coronated, but they're having some sort of thing where people are coming to pay tribute to him. Yep. And the the guard stops Moses and he's like, you know, where are you, you know, who are you and where are you from? And he's like, I'm from the kingdom of God. I wanted the guy to be like, um, which God? Yeah, not on the list. Yeah, sorry, yeah. not on the list. Back of the queue, not on the list. <laughs> um, the kingdom so, of I say so because you know, I, I'm I did like their like competing for Nefertiti. Uh, I did like that. Nefer, f- f- Nefertiti. No, Nefertiti. Is a is an is a different Egyptian queen, so there's I had to I I had to look this up because I was getting I was getting confused. They they change her name in this movie because Cecil B. DeMille was worried that people would just make boob jokes instead of Nefertiti, right? So it's Nefertiti. Yeah, like I forget how they Nefertiti, but it's Nefertiti. Oh, well, Cecil B. Uh, DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille is the narrator of this movie. Did you know he that? He's the narrator, and he's the guy that comes out at the beginning and says, hey, this movie's like four hours long. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was also rumor that he played the voice of God, but um, Charlton Heston has kind of come out after the fact and said he was he was the voice of God for the burning bush. There's still some debate whether or not he was the voice of... Yeah, it was like done through a bunch of mixers. and. Oh. Um, but... So, fun fact about about the would-be princess. Yes. While there's no sort of ever, like, genealogical history of her character, mm-hmm. she's called, like, a throne princess. Yep. Basically, what that probably means is she was also the daughter of Pharaoh. Yeah, that's how the Egyptians did it, because they, they kept everything they inbred to keep the line, quote-unquote, pure. Yeah. 
So this movie actually filled me with several theological questions. Oh, sure. Shoot. Academy Rewind does theology. Shoot. Well, you kind of have to with this movie. Yeah. One being who ends up who ends up becoming the next pharaoh because their their firstborn dies. Uh, I would assume that they just have more children. Because oh, their relationship doesn't seem like it's in a good place. I don't think that that's an option when you're the king <laughs> and queen. I did. I was wondering about that though. Uh, not who becomes pharaoh afterwards, but I was curious about Ramses' reign after this event. Yeah. If it was Ramses, and he went on to do amazing things yeah, for Egypt and died in his nineties. Yeah. So good on you, Ramses. Yeah, I guess. Good job. Also, did you know that Ramses' Greek name is Ozymandias? No, I did not know that. Yeah, so uh, Ozymandias, if you um Watchmen. of the of Watchmen, the Percy Shelley poem yeah. to which um Adrian takes his name Ozymandias from, you know, look upon um ye works in despair, all that that's yeah. Ramses the second. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um second is second is there's two different apparently the Egyptians just have multiple people as slaves. Yes, that's correct. Because you have the Egyptian, you have the Israelites who are doing all the building and that. Who, who, who's the faction that's the Hyksos? The, okay, the Hyksos is the other, the other group. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ramses had ten children. Okay, and then my final one, and this is really the most important one. So the whole tenth plague thing, you have Moses saying, "It won't be by my hand; it'll be by your hand that the tenth plague happens." Mm-hmm. And Ramesses says, "Kill the firstborn, mm-hmm. and not just kill the firstborn male child, which is what I've always been led to believe." He was like, "Kill the firstborn, yeah, male, you, female doesn't it, matter. It would be st- it would still be the male child." They when they say that firstborn, it's firstborn male. Okay, because firstborn female doesn't count as the firstborn. <laughs> doesn't count. Sorry. Yeah. So Moses is like, oh man, that means that means God is going to kill the firstborn of of Egypt, mm-hmm. including their servants. Which I'm like, those poor servants, they don't have a choice. They're not doing anything. Yeah. But doesn't what I want to know is. How far does that go? Does that also go to their cattle and livestock? Uh, technically, yes. So here's my <clears throat> let me just uh, <laughs> let me just teach you some history and science with theology thrown in for fun. So if you look at if you're looking at the events of the world and what's happening in the world at the time, supposedly of Moses showing up and being like, let my people go. They're not really my people. They're God's people. But you know what I mean. I'll see, I, catch you later. I've gotten <laughs> I've gotten very close to them ever since I found out I was born there. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're very close. Yeah. I went to work in the field that one time. You saw I was wearing a, Remember? I was wearing a cap. Yep. Yeah. To keep my hair nice. Yeah, his wig in this movie, by the way, I forgot how ridiculous it is, but I love it so much. <laughs> it's the best. So anyway, so th- around the time of Moses showing up and being like, do this stuff. Yep. There was a volcano that erupted in near Greece, and that eruption ended up causing havoc ended up causing havoc in Egypt. And so you can look at the plagues as uh, a kind of a sequence of events 
that all ha- that transpired. And so the Bible calls them like, I'm going to send this plague and this plague and this right. plague, but they're actually all connected to one another. So the first plague is uh, the Nile turning to quote unquote blood, right? Mm-hmm. So the Nile sits on these fault lines. And when that volcano erupted, it caused those fault lines to break open a little bit and release a gas that act that does that can turn water red because right. it happened in Thailand or something like that in the eighties or nineties or something it's like that. I am. So, no, not by, not by then it wasn't. <laughs> so, and so it, when that happens, the plague the, after that is frog frogs, out, right? Yeah. And so if you can't, if the frog can't sustain itself in the water, it comes out of the water. And so now you have an infestation of frogs, but then those frogs, because they're, because they came up out of the water and they can't survive in the water, they all die. Mm-hmm. And what? And then that brings that brings disease and that you know the mumps and the flies and then the and then the plague of locusts and like all this different stuff happens. And then that disease causes cattle to die on top of that because all the, it all spreads. Egypt becomes very dirty because you have right. all of these carcasses everywhere that you can't dispose of. So then that volcano, that ash comes over, floats to Egypt, blocks out the sun, and you get three days of night, which then also causes like ash and mixed with hail and whatever else to fall to the ground. That's all from the eruption. And so it goes on like this all in sequence over and over and over again. They're all connected to one another. When it gets to the 10th plague of, when it gets to the 10th plague of Egypt, those fault lines that gas that's in the Nile rises up and releases. I want to say it's not carbon monoxide, but it's something, it's something similar to Mm -hmm. that. And the type of gas that it is, it only floats on the bottom. Okay. And actually the movie did a pretty good job at this. If you notice, like it only is at their feet. And so that gas would only be at their feet and stay on the bottom level in Egyptian households. The firstborn male would guard the house, and he would sleep on his bed on the first floor of the house. And then the way Egyptian home were, they had a loft, which was where the rest of the family would sleep. So they were above the gas, which is why the firstborn male dies, and then everybody else is safe above because by the time the gas would get up to them, it would dissipate and be harmless into the atmosphere. Yeah. So that's why the firstborn males die. Magic. Got it. Got it. You got it. Yeah, good. Glad you followed my whole explanation. <laughs> so take that all as you will. You could believe people can believe whatever they want. You can you can look at it as that's baloney and I just made that up, even though I didn't. I fact checked. Um you can also because I, I used to teach it. Yeah. So you can look at that as miracles or whatever or the plagues work within the bounds of physics and reality and right. science and so like these things it's not all just magic it like it's yeah. bound by something or you can look at it that's all baloney and it did happen and it's magic yeah. but either way you're either believing in that it did or it didn't right so it's however you want to take it um i but this movie i i i enjoyed it so much that it still holds up like I think there's a lot of this movie that still holds like up. Like the 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 cinematography, beautiful film, is still beautiful is still film. just great. That shot of the pyramids when it comes back from intermission, yeah. gorgeous, beautiful yeah. wide shot. When they're leaving Egypt, the sets alone are amazing. Yeah, 
amazing, um, uh, incredible work done on this film. The only bit about this film that I don't think really works is the posing everybody's posing all the time. It's it's a direction from Cecil B. DeMille. He wanted everything to kind of look like a gallery painting. Mm-hmm. He wanted it to look like a Renaissance painting. And so if you watch it with that perspective, everybody turns and pivots and holds each other in weird ways and like ways that you wouldn't actually hold one another yeah. to make it look like a painting. I just naturally assume Yul Brenner is always posing. Yeah, he's oh my god, he flishes, he flicks his and flushes and swoops his cape more than anybody else <laughs> and then at the end when he literally just flails it off to put on his armor, I was like, oh, Yul Brenner, you go, you do your <laughs> thing Yul Brenner. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy The Prince of Egypt. I definitely don't want to watch it straight for another almost four hours again. But I'll definitely flip it on on Easter like we do every year yeah. and catch it in the next room. Yeah. And if you guys, you know, watch this movie, it, if you like the story of Moses and you've seen The Ten Commandments, you've you've obviously seen Prince of Egypt. There's a little-known musical called Ten Commandments, the musical with Val, Val Kilmer. Kilmer. Mm-hmm. It was shot at the Hollywood Bowl. I love it. It can be a little bit much. The music can be a little bit much. But I love it. Check it out. Um, I, you can find it on YouTube. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't think... I, it was on DVD. I don't think it's available anymore. Uh, but it's. I really like Val Kilmer in it. And, of course, Val Kilmer was in Prince of Egypt anyway. Mm-hmm. So you actually get his singing voice in this because he doesn't sing his own parts in the Prince of Egypt. No, he right? doesn't. Yeah. But he sings his own parts in the Doors film, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I think that's cool. So, actually, that reminded me that Prince of Egypt connection. So, when I was watching the film, I told you this off mic. When I was watching the film, mm-hmm. there's a tiny segment. There's a tiny motif of recurring music, a light motif that right. I think. It's like da 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 bum bum, and that I think it's that section, and that is used by Hans Zimmer in The Prince yeah. of Egypt. And I I tried to find it before the film to I mean before the recording of this to 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 implant, and I I just can't find it for the life of me. I'd have to watch the whole film again right. to do it, and I'm not going to do that. So, but it's, it, I I think Hans Zimmer took a like a tiny yeah. bit of the that was like inconsequential it's not anything but it's a cool it's a cool almost easter egg into the prince of egypt ah easter i see what you did there ah that's good it's yeah. good i almost passed over th- that joke womp, womp. Womp. <laughs> at least fourteen thousand extras and fifteen thousand animals were used in this film wow any of them named samantha the goose maybe <laughs> cool according to charlton heston's autobiography filming the orgy scenes was so grueling that one female extra exclaimed who do I have to have sex with to get out of this movie? Wow. She didn't actually use have sex with, but wear a clean show. Wow. <laughs> wow. What, what orgy scenes? The, well, like, that was the thing. By the, like by the Nile River, we're hanging out? No, during the Golden Calf scene. Oh, that it's, did. It's an orgy. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. But it's yeah, a yeah. family-friendly movie. So it's not so really. Yeah. they were told to not... Yeah, that actually doesn't surprise because that did look exhausting to do that over and over and over again. Yeah. According to the commentary on the 50th anniversary DVD in 2006, the Plague of Frogs was filmed but not used. Frogs left the muddied Nile, came up onto land, and chased Nefertiri. That's who they call her. They call her Nefertiri, but mm-hmm. it's supposed to be Nefertiti. 
Yeah. I thought other, Nefertiri was a different queen than Nefertiri, yeah. whatever. <laughs> and other Egyptians through their chambers at the, of the palace. Cecil B. DeMille felt the scene was not frightening enough and might even be considered comical, so he omitted it from the final cut. Oh, that's interesting. When adjusted for inflation, this is the top-grossing movie in the U.S. that is not benefited from multiple releases. Ooh. It it's grossed over a billion dollars, right? Huh? It's grossed over a billion dollars uh, with inflation. I believe so. Because it grossed a hundred I did the I did them it grossed hundred and ninety six million without inflation. Yeah. With inflation in twenty eighteen, that's over a billion dollars. Yeah. It's generally in the top three to top ten of all time top grossing films, depending upon who made the list and has and how they account for re releases and adjusted for inflation. That's awesome. Edward G. Robinson said Cecil B. DeMille saved his career by hiring from hiring him for this movie. Robinson had almost been blacklisted for his left-wing political activism and other work had dried up as a result. DeMille hiring Robinson for this film undermined the Hollywood blacklist. That is not technically true. Tell me more. Um, if you watch the movie Trumbo with Brian Cranston as... As, no, as the uh, writer Trumbo, who did um, yep. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. Was it Breakfast? No, no, Capote did Breakfast at Tiffany's. Well, he does a couple things, and he was blacklisted for not naming names at the, you know, at the American the House of American Unactivity, uh, Un-American Activities mm-hmm. Committee. Edward G. Robinson might have been blacklisted, but he named names. You're thinking of Roman Holiday. Roman Holiday, that was it. Also Exodus and Spartacus. Yes. Spartacus is actually what I was thinking of. Okay. Um, Edward G. Robinson named names in order to kind of try and save his career, and it got him kind of shunned. Hmm. So Cecil B. DeMille did hiring, hiring him for this kind of gave him a resurgence. Oh, that's interesting. The only film of the 1956 to be... Oscar nominated for Best Picture and not nominated for Best Director, thus proving the Academy has screwed this up since the beginning of time. The beginning of 1956. <laughs> How Cecil B. DeMille does not get nominated for Best Director, even if he doesn't win. Because he already made this movie. This is the second time making the Ten Commandments. <sighs> They're like, you already did this. Yeah, but I don't know, like, just the sheer scope of this. I agree. Sco- the it's... scope alone, you should be. That's maybe not a precedent today, because lots of movies have scopes like this now. But, but then, not so much. Actually, as soon as, I, as soon as I read this, my mind flashed forward, as far as time goes, to when um, Boz Lerman doesn't get nominated for Moulin Rouge. Like oh. that's a movie that does not work without a director. That without that win director, best picture. No, got a Golden Globe. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that movie does not work without Baz Luhrmann directing. I don't think this movie works without Cecil B. DeMille directing. Mm, I disagree with that. You think anybody could have just made this movie? I don't think anybody, but I think somebody other than Cecil B. DeMille could have made this uh, movie. I don't. I don't think so. Not at this time frame. Mm. And then finally, Cecil B. DeMille suffered a heart attack during the production. After climbing 130 feet to check a faulty camera perched on one of the giant gates used during the Exodus sequence, he took two days off, then returned to work against the doctor's orders. Two days off? Two days off. And this was also his final movie because he died. he died three years later. Yeah. Yep. Probably because he only took two days off. Probably. Actually. (laughs) Two days for a heart attack, man. 
Calm down. This was his. This was his uh, baby. Yeah. This was his baby. Yep. Wow. All right. Last movie. Around the world in eighty days, which is also the running time of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Directed by Michael Anderson. Um, uncredited John Farrow. He's he directed the Spanish sequences, yes. like the Bulba fighting and stuff. Was that one of your fun facts? No, uh, although that was completely added for the movie. That doesn't show up in the in the original novel the book hmm. because the person who played his companion was used to be a like had Conti, training as a bullfighter. Yeah, yeah, he had training as a bullfighter. Oh, there you go. Written by James Poe. John Farrow, S.G. Perlman, based on the book by Jules Verne, starring David Niven, Conta Flass, and Shirley MacLaine. Nominated for Best Director, Art Direction, and Costumes, it won Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Editing, and Music. Around the World in 80 Days tells the story of Phineas Fogg, who is... What is it? Phineas. See, that's what I thought. But every time I see the name written, it's written as Phileas. I thought it was Phineas. I thought it was Phineas Fogg, too. Oh, my God. What is it? What is it? What is it? Let me see. Around the World in 80 Days, David Nineman. Phileas. Oh, I'll be dang to Exactly. I'll be dang to Wow. How about that? I don't know how to feel about that, truthfully. We've been, I'm pretty sure everybody's been saying his name wrong. Huh. Look at that. Anyway. Look at that. Anyway. Tells the story of Phileas Fogg, who is kind of an eccentric millionaire and a London eccentric millionaire. And he's bet that he cannot go around the world in 80 days. And he's like, I take that bet. And so he does. The end. Yep. That's the story. All because of the international dateline. Yeah. It's it's the movie's total. The movie's total fluff. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed parts of it. I I think it it's not meant to be anything more than what it is. It wins because they visited every single country they filmed it, like that they went to. Yeah, it wasn't studio. Like they went to every single one, filmed there, and they shot in special millimeter format. And so that's why, especially at the beginning of the scene where he's Contaflas uh, is like, riding around on the bicycle, yeah. and all, all that. There's like that really wide, almost fish-eyed look to the screen. That's all because of. Um, I want to say they shot in seventy millimeter, even though most cameras could only take thirty-five millimeter or something mm-hmm. like that at the time. It, it's something like that. Um, so, but it creates a total widescreen that other even stuff like the 10 commandments weren't doing at this time. And so it's a, then it's a totally new visual experience around the world. I can see why if, if the reason for making the film is to show like panoramic views, the story is just constructed to show us different parts of the world in 1956. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why it wins. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. But it's very, you're right, it is very fluffy. Like, there's not, like... There's no story here. Th- there isn't. Like, they don't really run into a lot of issues. No, he maybe robs a bank. Probably not. Doesn't. Yep. The end. 
I mean, you have the... Shirley MacLaine says they're going to die on the boat, but they end up not dying on the boat. You know, I did like, I did like towards the end. So from like the, from the time that they do the Western, like when they're in America and they're taking the train Mm -hmm. and you have the Indian attack. Yep. That I think is pretty Uh, good. Native Indians. Yes. Native American Indians. Right. American Indians. Right. That's why I said America first. Oh, okay. When they were in America and yep. they got attacked by Indians, I didn't think people from India came over and started attacking you gotta be, them. Got to be specific. Christopher um, Columbus wasn't, <laughs> and beca- and he has a holiday named after him. So all I'm thinking right now is you robbed me of my holiday. It should be it should be Amerigo Vespucci Day, but that's besides <laughs> the point. So from there on, I kind of I think the film kind of. The kind of works and gives you a little bit more meat to it. You know that's true. Actually, I will agree with you. I don't think I don't think it really like really picks up until they're in San Francisco. Yeah, and could take the train from there. Although I really do enjoy his his comments about San Francisco. He's like, "We have to leave here. So uncivilized here." <laughs> and they're just standing in a San Francisco train station. Yep. He's like, "No, what did I say about talking to them? They, they're uncivilized." <laughs> I really I enjoyed I enjoyed that bit. Actually the flamenco dancing in Spain was yeah. super cool. It was it was nice, but like the whole Spain thing is just like from one thing to the next. That's what the whole movie is, it's yeah. one thing to the next. So in the book there's no hot air balloon. That's right, that's just for the film. That's just for the film. Which is good because all I sat there thinking throughout the entire thing is why the heck are they having to go through these hoops of, you know, catching a train and this and that? They have a hot air balloon. Just take the hot air balloon around the world and come down when you need to eat or do something. I think it would take more than 80 days to go around the world in a hot air balloon. You'd have so. to cross the ocean in a hot air balloon. You're fine. If you want to see this movie, though, just watch the Chipmunk movie. It is the same movie. Only it has oh, I it love has those music. movies. The chipmunks do real movies or real stories. No, the there's a there's a specific movie called the Chipmunk Movie, which oh. is just around the world in eighty days. I thought you were talking about the Alvin the, and the Chipmunk movies, no, the where chip, they like bat monk and right, stuff like but that. But no, this is the the Chipmunk Movie where Alvin, where the chipmunks and the chimpettes have a have a bet against each other to see who can go around the world hmm. in the fastest time, and it's sponsored by these two uh, people who are essentially smuggling diamonds. Crazy. So the whole thing is them, like, using them to smuggle the diamonds. It's good, but, I mean, there's not a lot of story. It's just fluffy. And for a three-hour movie, I -hmm. need something. Like, it wasn't as boring as A three-hour tour in 80 days, the tagline to this movie. (laughs) It It wasn't as boring as Giant because this has some good visuals. Hmm. And I like David Nevin. I do too. He's so funny. So this has enough to kind of keep me interested, but ultimately, like, I think this movie should have just been shorter. I agree. I also understand why it wasn't. It is that like we're going to these places. We're going to show you as much as possible. It wasn't because, and I thought about this after watching this and watching Giant. We're in an age of cinema. Where, or we're in an age in America where you have TV, but you don't really have TV programming. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Roots doesn't come along until the 70s or 80s, which is like the birth of the TV miniseries, the made-for-TV stuff. And I think if you had that stuff around... 77. 77. I think if you have that stuff around at this time, Around the World in 80 Days and Giant become made-for-TV movies because I think those would work in, like, our installments stretched over a couple nights. Yes, I, that's a good that's a good point. I'd watch that, maybe. So I feel like this is a made-for-TV movie because of the fluff that it has that just isn't enough to for me to be a movie. Hmm. Ultimately, I don't think it's meant for that anyway, and I right. agree this with you. I to... think on rewatch, it certainly hurts the movie. Yeah. It's meant to show you— To showcase this new stuff. This new stuff. Yeah. With having a little bit of fun while doing it, yeah. Slash, show you the world, yeah. Because you probably can't travel there in 1956. Yeah, I I I agree with you completely. I I don't think it's best picture material anymore. Yeah, I don't I don't hate this movie, but this is one of those like this is why we this is why we came up with the concept for the show is this one best picture, and for a modern sensibility. It sh- it probably should know sense and sensibility. Yeah, yeah, and zombies and zombies. Now I forgot what sense. Oh, sea monsters. Sea oh, sense and yeah. sensibility and sea monsters. So this movie created the idea of the cameo as a way to invite established stars to participate into in a production. Hmm. One of them being one of them that I didn't even notice until I saw it happen was I think the when they're in America. And they're like the guy that's playing the piano, and it turns around. And it's just Frank Sinatra smiling. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The film used 140 sets built at six Hollywood studios, as well as sets in England, Hong Kong, and Japan. It also set several records. The cast and crew flew over 4 million miles. Casting included 68,894 extras in 13 countries, and 74,685 costumes were designed made or rented for the film. The 1,243 extras listed on the IMDb page and in the original program book were only the extras who had worked on the film in Hollywood. 90 animal handlers managed 8,552 animals, 3,800 sheep, 2,448 buffalo, 950 donkeys, 800 horses, 500 and 12 monkeys, let's see the monkeys, <laughs> 17 bulls, 15 elephants, 6 skunks, and 4 ostriches. That's crazy. That's a lot. Screenwriter S.J. Perlman didn't attend the Academy Awards ceremony. He sent Hermione Gingold to accept it if he won. He wrote a note to her to read when she accepted. She said the following. I am very proud to receive this object to art on behalf of Mr. Perlman, who writes, He cannot be here for a variety of reasons, all of them spicy. He's dumbfounded, absolutely flummoxed. He never expected any recognition for writing around the world in 80 days, and in fact only did so on the express understanding that the film would never be shown. That's funny. Hermione uh, Gingold played Madame Alvarez in Gigi. Yes. If you didn't remember. She was the sporting lady in this one. That's yeah. her title, her uh, character name. And also, 
um, the director set very strict things with the theaters watching was theaters screening this. Mm-hmm. He wanted them to hand out playbills like it, he wanted them to mm-hmm. act like this was a play, okay, or a or a Broadway musical. He wanted them to hand out playbills with the movie. He wanted them to remove any clocks from the theater, and he banned the sale of popcorn. How many theaters actually would do that? I would assume. I don't know. I don't know. But I'd assume they did. Yes, yes. We'll cut back on a thing that keeps our doors open. No problem. You got it. Yeah. Nah. Shut up, Mr. (laughs) Anderson. Anyway. Yeah. Good movie. Okay. It was decent. All right. List of awards. Yes. Best actor goes to. Best actor? Best actor. Goes to a person, a person, the male persuasion. You're gonna give it to? Are you gonna give it to? Are you gonna give it to Gary Cooper? I'm not giving it to Gary Cooper. I would give it to Charlton Heston. I'm not giving it to Charlton Heston. Well, that's not nice. I'm gonna give it to Yule Brenner for The King and I. Okay, because. It ultimately, like, it was overdone, but ultimately the performance stuck in my head more than any other one. Okay. Even though I think I liked, I liked him maybe a little bit more in the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. but it, that was like an everybody was like overwrought that way. It's like a how not to act kind of oh, acting. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just so much. It's just overdone. Best actress. I would give it to the lead in um, Friendly Persuasion. Friendly Persuasion. That is uh, Dorothy McGuire. Yeah. I think I'm also going to give it to Dorothy McGuire. Supporting actor. I would actually give it to Yul Brenner in The Ten Commandments. I'm also going to give it to Yul Brenner in The Ten Commandments. Dude, you, you just told me. <sighs> I know. I can give it to whoever I want. Actually, I'm going to give it to Anthony Perkins in Friendly Persuasion. Oh, that was pretty good, too. I really enjoyed I enjoyed him <laughs> not murdering people. <laughs> Supporting actress Samantha the Goose. <laughs> nope, can't do that. What? Nope. Oh, then come back to me. <laughs> okay, I'm not doing that. I refuse. I won't let you do that. I'm going to give it to. Oh, I'll give it to Shirley MacLaine. Uh, then I'll I'll have to give it to uh, Ann Baxter, who played Nefertiri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ann Baxter. She I was really actually. Might give it to Ann Baxter. Actually, I want to. I'm going to go with Ann Baxter. I like Ann Baxter. <laughs> Cinematography. Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I Ten can, Commandments. I can is see the actually, case being made for for Around the World in 80 Days. I think days. Ten Commandments is actually prettier than Around the World in Eighty Days. Technicolor, man. Yeah, man. They need to bring it back. Mm, music. Music. Ooh. I really like the music in Ten Commandments. But I also really liked music in Friendly Persuasion. It did have some nice music. Um, no, nah, I got to go with Ten Commandments. Yeah, I'm also going with Ten yeah. Commandments. Best writing. Friendly Persuasion. I will agree. Friendly Persuasion. Production design. King and I. I'm going to give it Ten Commandments. Okay. I was pretty overwhelmed with some of the sets in in Ten Commandments. Uh, yes. I actually I would agree, but the yeah, but the I ten, think but it actually looked real in the King and I. Yeah, 
Uh, maybe I'm going to give, yeah. I give it to the king and I, because while I do like the set pieces in that and the Ten Commandments, like, everything is just so amped up in the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. that it doesn't necessarily stand out for me, and it stands out for me in the king and I. Oh, that's a good point. So it's like, like if you if you put a gun to my head and was like, what do you remember most about the, the king and I? It would be the the set pieces. The set pieces. What do you remember most about Ten Commandments? It would be Yul Brenner doing something. Yeah, that's a good point. What do you remember most about the King and I? Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin bl- Ballet. <laughs> uh, what about best costumes then? Best costumes, I'd probably also go with the King and I. King and I. I, see that one, I'd go I, think, for... I think the costumes looked... I'm not saying that work didn't go into the, the Ten Commandments costumes. It obviously did. But just the look of the costumes... I think it all blends better in the king yeah. eye. Hmm. I respect that. I think the I think the visual flair of the costumes in the Ten Commandments were more interesting. Okay. So I'm going to go, though probably not historically accurate, most likely definitely not historically accurate. Mm-hmm. I think they were just, it just worked in what they were trying to do. So I'm going to go Ten Commandments plus, I'll count that as makeup because that wig and beard was just <laughs> tremendous. And then, so that leaves Best Picture. Let's open up those envelopes that... And you say the best picture is? Ten Commandments. I'm going to also go with the Ten Commandments. I kind of want it to be friendly persuasion, though I also oh, recognize. I, I, I do, too. I rec- it's one of those I recognize this is not the quote-unquote best picture for the best picture criteria we have set or that well, the that Academy really set. sets. Yeah. But uh, Ten Commandments, I try to think of a thing, movies that have been enduring classics, and there are rarely a film isn't. like the Ten Commandments. Right. That, and and I give you that in this case, but I also think, like, I sometimes what I ultimately have to base it on is what movie am I going to watch again out of these? I'll definitely probably watch Ten Commandments at some point. I would still really watch Friendly Persuasion again. But you'll most likely watch Ten yeah. Commandments more. Me too. Me too. And, and I, again, enduring cultural like movies that will last the ten commandments is one of those yeah. films and it's still like it still holds up some of the I effects put, were still pretty good i would put that movie up against a lot of movies now and it's it just i think it blows a lot of stuff out of the water still i agree it is the posing and overwrought acting that gets to me yeah but i think even it, though you just gave the actor responsible for that in award. Yes, that's correct. But as as, 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 I, as I finish my sentence, everybody's doing it. It's a very sp- specific style that Cecil B. DeMille wanted yeah. because he wanted it to feel overdone and epic and overblown. And so that style of acting is meant to be showcased in this film. Yeah. And so it works. I wouldn't want to see it all the time. It, it's not real, right. but uh, but I enjoyed it. So anyway, so that is nineteen. That is nineteen fifty-seven. Whoop whoop. Coming up for nineteen forty-seven, Henry the Fifth, The Razor's Edge, The Yearling, The Best Years of Our Lives, and It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. So this episode will not be coming out around Christmas, but that's okay. Nope. Nope. But that's okay. So you can join us back in two weeks for it's one uh, for all those films, not just <laughs> for all those films. Groups. But including It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life for 1947. 
You can find us on Gmail and Twitter at Academy Rewind. You can rate and review us on iTunes and find us other places podcasts can be found. You can also check out all other Thought Bubble Audio shows at ThoughtBubbleAudio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyPG13. And that's the whole kit and caboodle from us. So, which is good because the people are playing us off. No, I have something else people to think. That's too bad. Bye. Bye.